Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, and with me today is the wonderful Sarah Pazell. Sarah, how are you? Yeah, I'm fantastic, Tom. Really excited to be on this podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I brought you on because, to be honest, I don't know a lot about ergonomics. But before we get into that, for those who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about your background, professional background, how it relates to safety, and what are you currently up to? Yeah, great. Thanks for the question. You're not the only one that doesn't know much about ergonomics, Tom. I've had one person say, oh, you're an agronomist, are you, instead of an ergonomist? <laughs> and I'm like, well, it sounds like we sometimes push stuff uphill. Yep. <laughs> but a little fertilizer here and there. But but. Ergonomics is really unique. It is unusual. It's poorly understood and perhaps poorly mar marketed and promoted. So this is a really good opportunity to help educate your safety listeners, your subscribers, this sort of community. And equally, I always learn something in exchange. So it's it's two-way. And that's the whole nature of ergonomics. It's kind of a two-way street. It's It's the study of how people interact in their environments, how they thrive, how they work, you know, how, what's the elements of their physical requirements, their thinking and their cognitive requirements, all of the interpersonal and social aspects of who they are and how they interact. And basically, what's the human experience in that environment or that work system? And the reason I say that first is to, to give a really broad understanding that it is a profession in and of itself. And the people that get into ergonomics may be someone like me, or it could be somebody with a different background and we blend our skills together. So you asked about my background and I have several degrees and, and work experiences that cross over lots of domains. And that, that got me into ergonomics. So would you like me to explain a little bit about where I started? Yes. So taught my first education, my first degree was in occupational therapy 
And occupational therapy is just just a beautiful profession. It talks about people. And I love learning about the science of people and performance. It talks about their occupations and their environments and their performance. And you'll hear this model used a lot, PEOP, people, environments, occupations, performance. And I add that to that layer, organizations. And, and it's the intention of how you're going to help someone thrive in the world. It's a very positive psychology type of driven profession. So I'll throw a term out at you that may take a little to unpack, but it's about salutogenesis instead of pathogenesis. And that's it's really unique and different. Pathogenesis is like finding a pathogen, finding a problem, a disease state or a diseased part of the work system. You need to identify hazards and manage risks, that kind of thinking if you use safety language. And saluto genesis is the birth of all things good, essentially. Genesis is, you know, the beginning and saluto is, is positive. So it's trying to look at how do you construct health? How do you build well-being? So it's a very different philosophy. It's sort of flipped in, in this ongoing, more than a continuum. It's not linear. It's, it's a web-like kind of idea. And I, that, that always intrigued me. And I loved occupational therapy. I loved thinking about how people thrive and what makes them tick, what motivates somebody. But what I quickly learned is that I love doing this one in terms of populations of people, populations of people and the element of design. And that was the linkage to ergonomics and human factors for me. So you'll hear these terms used interchangeably, ergonomics and human factors. Mm-hmm what you'll find is some countries will use one term more frequently than another, and some countries will interpret them slightly differently. But you'll, most of our professional associations just say, oh, bugger it, ergonomics and human factors. <laughs> so you have, the, you have the HFESA in Australia, Human Factors Ergonomics Society of Australia. In you know, You've got Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors in the UK. So they'll combine them. Some countries think of human factors more psychology, others think ergonomics is more physical, but ergonomics is about that integration of physical, cognitive, psychosocial, environment, occupation, and how somebody's going to perform. Now, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you've already solved one issue for me. I I knew about human factors and and thought that focused on the psychology type of side, side of things. And ergonomics, I actually thought, again, was basically human movement so uh, more of the physical side so yeah that's excellent that's that solves something straight away for me so thank you Uh, please continue different different countries it will be interpreted differently so a girlfriend in brazil in brazil ergonomics will refer more to the psychology and the psychological aspects of work rather than human factors right so (laughs) just just to confuse you if you're confused you're not the only one right It is it is interpreted differently, applied slightly differently. But if you combine them, you're going to pretty much going to cover your bases. And and a lot of times ergonomics people will think it's just the workstation, a mouse and a keyboard. And that's what I call. Yeah, that's kind of Google ergonomics. That's not really, you know, we're thinking of big systems changes. We're thinking about, you know, phenomenal aspects of everything that can be considered and integrated when you think about the design of people at work or when they engage and interact with products, the user experience. So it is really, it's quite broad in that, and I use that that term purposely, that, that term design. So the other, the other 
credentials. I have the formal pathways. I have a, a master's of business administration and a PhD in human factors and ergonomics, just to add a little alphabet soup to, <laughs> to the nomenclature. And I have then specialty programs that I did in ergonomics, even since my very first degree in, in occupational therapy. And in fact, when I was working as an OT, I, and I was in management early in my career, there was a colleague of mine and she was an occupational therapist who was blind and mm-hmm. I, which was at that time, you know, going back maybe two days ago, <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> at that time, she, I just was, I remember how remarkable it was to get through university and to do, go through a degree where normally vision is, is used quite a bit in interactions of assessing people. And she would have had to do in her her degree, a clinical assessment of people. And she would have to go through without the same kind of technology that we have to enable her access to educational materials. So she was blind, legally blind, and she, you know, was able to accomplish her occupational therapy degree. She was able to achieve that. But her husband was a an architect and he called himself a behavioral architect. And I said, what's, what's that? Excuse me, I don't know anything about that. And he explained to me that he can look at almost stereotypes were designed for different cohorts of people to really help their performance and how, you know, a male or a female might access a building, a structure in a whole different way, or how they may approach the interpretation of their access to a mug, a cup, or, you know, if you look at industrial design, I was like, what? (laughs) Step back. Hang on. This is so interesting. And I think it was really from that very early conversation that I just started to absorb and attend every ergonomics conference I possibly could, every any extra credential certification programs, you name it. I just love the idea of design and performance and looking at these funny human behaviors that can be nudged by design. And so you'll I also have, you know, education degrees in, in exercise science and yoga training. And I use that for the stuff that I I, I draw upon for the ideas of psychology and self-regulation and neurological regulation. So it's a little bit of everything, but I've mentioned that other professions, you know, other people may choose another profession and still get to this path of ergonomics. So you'll find people who are industrial designers, who are process engineers, who are psychologists, who are physiotherapists. I've got somebody now interested and she's completing her double master's in biomedical engineering, and she's wanting to get into ergonomics and I'm helping to mentor her. So again, if you think, wow, that's a little unusual and confusing, yeah, <laughs> you'd be right to, to be in that blur. But the beautiful thing is, the bountiful thing is, there's such diversity that we can learn so much from all these different careers, these pathways. And in Australia, the last I heard, there were fewer than 100 certified professional ergonomists that have you know deemed to meet the credentials by the Human Factors Ergonomics and Society of Australia to, to merit the, the, the credentials. In other words, to have some level of competency that they'll, they'll put their stamp of approval on in, in multiple domains. Those domains of physical, cognitive, psychosocial, environmental, and performance-based occupation and work systems. So, uh, you know, again, hard to spread that out all around Australia. And ergonomists in those domains will have specialties. Oftentimes you may somebody may find somebody who has a specialty in an industry like rail mm-hmm. or, or mining or aviation or, you know, healthcare and hospital care. And Tom, I think you work a lot in mining. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, we do, do train a lot of people and 
in Western Australia, it's very heavily resource driven. So yeah, a lot of our clients come from a mining or resource background. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you need to think about examples in mining, it could be everything from how to help design for diversity so that people, particularly if you go most basic, the, the reaches and the heights and the strength capacities of men versus women and trying to access machinery and tools and equipment that might need a design flavor so you can have a more inclusive workplace. Or it could be as complex as trying to understand automation in mining systems and highly automated systems. If you're going digging, drilling deep underground and you need to remove humans from the system, how are you going to do this where you don't actually just get rid of humans? Humans are still there. They just Mm -hmm. change their job roles and the nature of their work still influences performance of that mine, the productivity, like the more cognitive roles, the teleoperation, the the control room operation, you know, the decisions that must be made, the actions taken, they just, they, they change. And so understanding that is really important from the, what the humans must do in that changing world of work. Yeah. You mentioned there's only around or approximately a hundred certified ergonomists. There were 85 the last I'd heard, but I haven't checked in with the latest stats. So yeah, definitely, you know, check with them but it's yep. always been fairly <clears throat> low but there what? are other people who specialize in human factors who haven't they may have a psychology background for example and they haven't gone through the that cpe what, credential what do you think the numbers are so low well it's just from what i've described is that it's, it's quite a complex pathway and and there's not a, a very clear-cut educational pathway in australia although i see that that landscape's changing a little bit and even in the us you know it's very hard to find just a, a degree in ergonomics or so oftentimes in australia i'll find that there may be a unit a topic one subject and that's Often why sometimes people think that they know ergonomics because they've done one topic. An industrial designer might learn about anthropometrics. So again, another long word, but it basically means the the size and shape and movement patterns of, of, of people, you know, not so much even so much the, the dynamics, but definitely the size and shape and the different measurements of our hands versus our, our you know, upper arm, torso, our girth, our hips, to be able to work out how people fit in a a cab if we talk about mining equipment, right? They Mm might have done one topic and thought that was ergonomics. That's all they were exposed to. And like a lot of things, we don't know what we don't know. I hear, you know, safety professionals may have done a topic about ergonomics. I teach to safety professionals at at graduate levels and help with research projects and oversee research projects. But ergonomics is its its own profession with a lot of other subjects underneath that and it really is very much a a design profession too so i don't i don't call myself well I stand back hold on huh you know hold up hold back i don't call myself a safety professional mm-hmm. i've always considered myself to be a design professional and safety may be one of the objectives in that design so it's a, it's a different philosophy. It's a different way of thinking. And I rely on safety professionals, safety scientists, I call it. You know, My first degree, I, I believe the strength of it was the occupational science. Mm-hmm. And I rely on safety scientists all the time to partner with them in that design process. Yeah. it Just to me, from what you're talking about, people with, oh, I won't say 
ergonomists, but uh, human factors, they sound like they should be built into every large workplace because it sounds like you should be involved in designing greenfields type workplaces. Oh, uh, you get the bonus today, Tom. Okay. <laughs> we think so too. Brownie points for Tom today. <laughs> I, I, I could see the benefit of it, but you, you, I don't think maybe maybe it's just me, but I would I would suggest that it would be great if you were actually integrated into the workplace instead of just being called on uh, ad hoc to provide a bit of advice here and a bit of advice here. Oh, to... oh, absolutely. Yeah, if we could be involved in the design of systems and, and equipment and procurement schedules, uh, what, what we call human systems integration, which is another another term I spoke about even in, in 2014 at the Human Factors Conference. I call it life cycle ergonomics, from hire to retire and every touch point in between. What's the life cycle of that worker? So you, you talk about, you know, capital equipment life cycles. In in, in rail, you have those V, v diagrams, et cetera, in, in engineering. But the same thing needs to be thought of for, for humans. What are all of their touch points? And and how are you going to optimize that performance, not just to keep people healthy and well, but that performance optimization meets business objectives. So as soon as workers start their career, the business community has pretty much a, a duty of care is how I see it. And if the worker joins an organization at age 20 or an industry, let's just say they've got what, another 45 years and all of their interactions can positively affect performance if it's designed well and then you know they have the opportunity to to contribute to the business model and certainly they can be subject to the influence of lifestyle factors that we hope design would nudge to be positive but when we realize these business objectives through effective design of work work systems products and promote worker health and capability we we optimize that value proposition of humans in our work systems and we from a purely business perspective, we derive value from our workers if it's to, if the system's designed well, and we garner productive return on investment. So it's a no-brainer, right, to me, from hire to retire and everything in between, or if you want a term that you'll find in the research literature, a human systems integration approach, then definitely, you know, get us involved. And then there, there's, there are ISO standards about being a human-centered organization, for example, Yep. And, you know, companies can can look at these ISO standards and they can start to adopt these. And, and I'd love them to write a, a like a, a business proposition that this must exist at an executive C-suite level and have key drivers talking about human systems integration. So just as you're saying, if, if humans are involved in any tasks at your workplace, then you really should have a partnership with ergonomists and human factor specialists working with safety teams and engineering teams and other other roles yeah all right just from my experience yeah it's it <laughs> seems like the industry the profession you're in is seen as a a, a bolt-on it's an add-on to existing business it's it's a, it's a, too often a troubleshooter yes, too often. something's gone wrong i don't know let's get the subject matter expert in to basically fix our mistakes why? Why? If it's, this is such an integral part, and I can see it is because you've kind of blown my mind a little bit, and I, I kid you not with that, <laughs> I, I, I can just see the the great range of I don't know opportunities that that, that that are there for business as well as for people. Why is it that 
you basically ergonomists are, are brought in as only the late addition, you know, the Johnny come lately, the add on, the the ticking the box exercise, instead of being involved right from the word go and continually being involved in the business. Well, you know, you're you're doing a great job right now helping to educate the business and the health and safety community just just by being open to having these kinds of conversations, Tom. And so, you know, where does that that lack of knowledge lie? How do you build tacit knowledge or shared knowledge? Uh, that's that's such a challenge. There are marketing professionals who specialize in communication professionals that specialize in let's just say maybe the ergonomics and human factors community could could benefit from translating what we do a little bit better so so people understand the the implications. I, I've put a lot of work into trying to create some communication vignettes, some little video case studies on our website, for example, just to say, you know, you know, you know, when you've got this problem, well, this is what we do. And just the other day, in fact, we did this to try and give examples, because there's a real barrier when I say ergonomics generally to, you know, if I say this to the general populace, they think of mouse and keyboard. And I use a, a terminology, I use a, a phrase to my title, I call it a work design strategist, because that makes people pause and they go, Oh, what do you do? And on on our service palette for for consultancy work, we talk about a level one, a level two, and a level three service. And level one is probably the things that people are more familiar with. And that might be, you know, an office workstation assessment, or you're doing a fit out, you need to change that environment, train everybody. But they don't necessarily even get you involved to, to give advice yet about the equipment, which we could certainly do. Or it's manual task risk management training or some basic seminars on health topics that that was sort of a, a level one service and we've got team members who are you know very capable at doing that and companies like that and enjoy that and level two is sort of a little more champion type services where they're getting you involved in partnership with safety professionals with those risk assessments the the analysis of jobs maybe some product design strategy or you might have a business looking for a fit out and they want to get their green star credits for interiors mm-hmm. and we a certified professional ergonomist can review the systems and if it's qualified certify it with a letter to say yes this should qualify for an ergonomics credit and we we may even look at sensory approaches to workplace well-being or what we call having a sensational workplace and how mm-hmm. people integrate their sensory world and thrive if that's well regulated and can be designed and that's a whole nother topic of itself. So park that. And then level three is kind of our premier services. That's sort of those organizational macro ergonomics. That's the stuff I love to, to advise organizations about their whole entire design strategy and their business, their research partnerships, their human systems integration, the highly automated systems that we've talked about and helping also really helping with safety critical work design making sure we understand the human tasks that are involved in those safety critical, you know, events. Yeah. Look, I'm just thinking. Uh, There's a few questions going around my head. Economists, human factors, people. You'd think if this, their, their, their advice could help, that they'd be involved with, I don't know, any sort of government organisation that builds infrastructure. Are they? Perfect. 
perfect. I would say that there are opportunities for for ergonomists and human factor specialists to be in pretty much across every industry and certainly, you know, large business and government entities. And there's very little of it happening. So mm. we would love, we would love to have more relationships, more demand. We would love to help encourage people in pathways to become certified professional ergonomists. I see the the association doing a, a great job with that. And and it is you you tell me that you know you you're great at marketing and promotion, Tom. How, how does it you know how do you make your stamp as a profession? How do you get understood? So misunderstood. <laughs> I, I, I how think, do you change that that knowledge? I've had to change language about my title yeah, so it's not yeah. a barrier. I, I think you're right. I think that language in certain fields is so important. It's so important. And, and yeah, I, I'm with you. Get rid of the word agonomist. All that does for me, I think of agonomists as perhaps middle-aged man with a goatee <laughs> in a tweed jacket and a clipboard watching <laughs> someone do their work. That, that's what I think of. Or or I think of the other people, you know, come in and help you set up your desk and that's it. That's all yeah. it engenders yeah. to me. Human factors, that's a bit more interesting. That's a that's a bit more funky. But we've got to get some education out there. This is this is just too important because we're talking about designing systems where there is a, a greatly reduced probability of people being injured. We're yes. talking about designing systems that are based on the way people think and the way people move. And quite often it's not the case. We we design our systems around a piece of plant or equipment or a process. Exactly. exactly. And the human basically has to be the this, they're the, they're the around square, square object that's punched into a round hole and, you know, yep. you make it work. Ah, oh, dear. I just say, I got to say, I just think of things like designs of buses. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm working on some projects now. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, can, I can see all the possibilities. And new electric vehicles, for example. Yeah. Oh, goodness me, yeah. But I didn't think like designing of roads and, and, and as I said, public infrastructure, parks, et cetera. And and you can also apply the the understanding not just to the people who are doing the building and the construction, but the users. So you That's may it. understand, you know, what are the implications of a new playground? How will people likely use that? Have you considered all the cohorts of potential users? So it's it's the user experience as well as the people involved in design and, and i'll tell you one group that's often always missed is the maintainers who's going to maintain that system and have you have you designed for their work too so that that's productive and efficient how, how frustrated must you be that your profession is so widely misunderstood i've turned that into i've turned that into excitement because it just tells me there's a lot of opportunity yeah, oh, <laughs> so yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm not stuck in being frustrated or disappointed. I'm really excited. There's a lot of opportunity to spread the news and to do better about creating some sound bites about everything that we can do and to, you know, make sure that we can celebrate through good design, you know, let people, I think we really need to, to showcase when we get some good case studies, you know, let people own it, not just from us, but let our clients own that. We've, I've, I've nominated clients and they've won awards for some design, whether it's the Good Design Australia Awards 
or with its, you know, traditional classic safety awards. So I really want to have them celebrate what they're achieving. Now, in, in, in the safety world, it's interesting because you see a lot of new ideas emerging and the, the concept of, of performance, human organization performance, safety to safety differently, some of the aspects of resilience engineering. And yet when you've been trained comprehensively in human factors and ergonomics, those are ideas that were already embedded in our profession. So we're like, oh, oh, I'm glad you guys are you know, connecting those dots. But yeah, of course, right? So yeah, <laughs> but of course it was a system and of course human performance was important. <laughs> but some of the difference may be like the concept of design. So in, for example, HOP, the, the human organization performance tends to be a little bit more around leadership and, and behavior and some of the psychology around the motivations and teams and learning teams and that kind of thing. And whereas human factors maybe far more anchored in design of those systems so that that design focus and and leadership strategies is part of that design but it really is how what are the methods you're using to discover something about that work system or product what are the techniques that you're using that have some evidence to solve real world problems in design strategy and how are you realizing that design and not just stopping but celebrating and continuing to learn. It's not, it's not a linear single process. It's this ongoing iterative back and forth, always learning process. Yeah. All right. I, I prepared all these wonderful questions were based on my misconception of ergonomics. So I'm, I'm basically. Have I thrown you? So oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I just have to be, I'll, I'll use one of those trendy words. I'll have to be agile. Oh, to, there you uh, go. To, to, to sort of, Pivot, uh, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> i got to tell you, there's so many words out there that I just That's hate right. hearing because they, they've become meaningless. They, they yeah. might be a couple of them. All right. So let's let's try and adapt a couple of these questions. Okay. okay. All right. COVID-19, three years, three years since it made itself felt in Australia. Yep. Lots of people move from traditional workplaces to yep. either hybrid or working from home solely. Yep. Oh, I would think this is an economist or human factor. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It's an absolute nightmare, wouldn't it? Because... Or great opportunity. Fertile ground, that's right, to help advise organizations. That's right. There's a changing world of work. And we certainly can't take that for granted. I I heard a lot of phrases, you know, you talk about trendy phrases that that 
came up during those times. And one of the phrases that you would from, you know, different industries trying to trying to embrace this idea of what everything's upside down was it's it's not where you work, but why. And I, I thought about that. I thought, well, okay, yes, it's great to make sure you've got purpose and work that you've got some something driving you and you've got motivation. And I and I think that that compels an idea about making sure people have jobs that are crafted well, that inspires them and is meaningful to them in their work. But on the other hand, you, you, you cannot dismiss a ton of scientific evidence that talks about places and spaces that matter, you know, so, so you've got to be careful when you just quickly pivot, like you said, with a new trendy term or phrase, places and spaces matter. We know that circadian rhythms can be affected by lighting that airflow is really important. Molding your environment is is important. Acoustics can affect performance. Uh, your your vision, the the glare, indirect and direct. You, you keep going through these list of these design concepts in environmental science and whether or not you can have design. As I said right at the beginning, and the core of my interest in this was design that nudges behavior. So design is really influential in that built environment uh, and the landscape. That, you know, whether you have a sense of nature, that that concept of biophilia around you, when this is important. So you, you can't you can't let that go. So, yes, places and spaces matter. Very important and equally must have some sort of purpose at work. And what we found through this changing world of work or we're continuing to find is that jobs that were always considered to be safe and maybe something that an organization didn't have to pay much attention to for lack of better words, in terms of the safety critical space, suddenly something that was routine, fairly safe, protected in an office became this really volatile, you know, that that term you guys use in oil and gas and mining, a, a VUCA, a volatility, uncertainty, a complexity and ambiguity. That happened in the basic office environment. People didn't know how they were supposed to communicate, how they were supposed to associate. There was isolation. There was fear. We found that people lost their routines that used to help them regulate their neurological capabilities that I mentioned before, their senses, the sensational way of working and living. And they have, might have had a, a change in routines among family members, and that has a trickle-down effect. Uh, they might have been exposed to family violence. We know that all cause Mortality factors like sedentary behaviors increased and diabetes increased, type 2 diabetes. So there are a list of factors. We know that calls for, for mental health increased during these times. So suddenly what was safe no longer felt safe. What routines we had just turned upside down and they're still still evolving. So definitely room for opportunity. <laughs> for us to partner with your professions <laughs> and design of work to make sure we continue to help people get this right yeah. and organizations get this right. Can I, can I tell you, it, it, it seemed to be a, a, a strange situation where uh, we took highly, let's say, regulated workplaces yes. and just said, okay, go work from home and it, it's, it'll be fine. It, you know, here's a You'll laptop. be right, mate. Yeah. yeah and, and we'll give you this ergonomic checklist to set yes. up your desk. There and you go. Here's 200 bucks. Buy what you need from office work, <laughs> hey? <laughs> whatever you need, whatever you think you need. And right. it's, it was just like expecting people 
to somehow create the safe space for themselves. And which, know what they need. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. But I just went, you know, this is basically a shifting of the duties from your employer and yes. they're basically outsourcing them to the employee you know, here's a little bit of money. Go do go, go do whatever you think you need. And it was. I, I heard some some employees would get like a fifty dollar voucher. <laughs> like, what? I, I can tell you now. One place I was at, we were delivering laptops to people yes. who, who had COVID, so that they could work oh. from home. Oh, I but mean, let's keep them going during COVID. Yeah. That's right. Let's, let's make sure they're productive. Flogging that horse. You can't come to work. That's okay. We can That's actually, okay. we'll... we can provide you work that you will do while you're sick at home. You want a bedside table, mate. Oh, dear. But uh, some of the, some of the weird systems I, I, I saw when it first came in was, you know, yeah, yeah you have your, your checklist for the people to do at home. And then yes. they'd say, we want you to take a photo of your workspace Oh, and, yes. and we'll determine it's safe. Well, that's wonderful. I, I I knew people whose workspaces were like, you know, three foot deep in paperwork either side of the keyboard. Yes, yes. And they literally just literally moved the piles out of sight, took a photo, and then put them back. And, I mean, it's completely unrealistic. A place I knew also then thought they were getting smarter. And so at the start of every that those lovely Zoom meetings or Teams meetings every day, you actually had to get your your camera and show everyone your workspace. You know, oh, that's, boy. that's not the the shaming tech <laughs> mechanism around there. But yeah. Yeah. But, it's too it's too simplistic. It it really is. And you know, it's so funny because when I when I see these types of approaches, and it is difficult. So to be fair, it's, it was a difficult thing to manage and people weren't prepared. People, leaders, team, you know, organizations certainly had no no idea that they should prepare for this. So so I'm going to say this gently with a little bit of love. But at the same time, when I when I see people saying, oh, that's an awkward posture, we need to stop that hazard. I go, well, hang on. Hazard has to be considered in relation to interacting risk factors. So I do yoga. I'm in all kinds of pretzel poses. Are you going to take a quick photo of that and tell me that I am, you know, affecting adversely affecting my health through my practice of yoga? And then everyone just goes, huh? And it stops. They're like, nah. So context matters. Context, exposure matters. It's not that simple. And I, I, Tom, right now, as I'm speaking with you, if I push myself away, I am in a pose called yoga sukhasana with my legs crisscrossed almost like lotus in the in my chair. <gasps> you know, ooh. And when I need really concentrated, focused work, and I have to just step away for a moment, I take my laptop away from this whole work system. And yes, I have sit stand and I have uh, multiple screens for different types of things I need to do and focal task lighting, but I'll lay on my belly in prone and, or sometimes have my leg out to the side. And that's my, I just suddenly get in this cone of silence. That's my cognitive space when I have to solve a problem. And it may just be for 10 minutes or half an hour. And then I'll come back to my traditional workstation. So should I have taken a photo of some of those postures? How do you think I would have been assessed? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In breach of policy, Sarah. Absolutely. So you can't, you, it's not too simple, you, you know. And that's, okay, so you asked me right at the beginning, why aren't people embracing this? Because it's, it's more challenging to look at work systems rather than just to blame behaviors and people. 
it's far easier to say, we're going to have a healthy health topic and give you a webinar, or we're going to simply ask you to fill out this checklist. Thanks. We've done our job as opposed to hang on. What's the entire system of work? What are the communication systems, the recruitment, the onboarding, the training systems? How do we help that person and their tasks and their entire job role really achieve the business objective? What's all the equipment that they need to interface with? You know, what do they need to do? Every time that piece of equipment is used differently, the risk assessment we had done originally might no longer apply. It's task-based driven that we need to reassess it. And that often doesn't happen. The risk assessment is kind of static based on the equipment. It's like, well, how's it being used this time? And in what, what place? Above ground, underground, you know? So it takes it takes a very sophisticated system and managers, leaders, operators in that system and C-suite board level executive teams to really embrace the ideas that they are committed to design and innovation. Yeah. All right. You talked about a bit of the ergonomics. It's a little bit of psychology in there. Do ergonomists, human factors, people, do they do they take into account psychosocial risks? Absolutely, yeah. So you're if you're a human, you're physical, you're cognitive, and you have psychosocial relations and experiences. One hundred percent. Okay. You work in environments, and you have objectives and and performance goals. Which which is harder, coming up with solutions for physical risks and physical processes, or coming up with solutions for psychosocial you see this is interesting because you're getting into something that's topical for me and something that i'm passionate about is i don't see that the risk or the hazard is related to a hazard type or an energy source i see it as related to a human and their task and performance and that you can't separate those (laughs) (laughs) i see i see design relating to to humans, their their work cohorts, their tasks and what they need to achieve. And within that, there are physical exposures, cognitive and psychosocial exposures. And we need to design for that performance. What's that business objective? What's the performance? So not one's not harder or less hard than another. What's challenging is sometimes the invisible stuff that's cumulative so that we don't see immediately, like not just, you know, falling out of a job truck, for example, not just immediately having someone yell at you, abuse you and be aggressive and violent in a heat of the moment. But over time, the insidious cumulative stuff that you need to unpack in design processes, that's probably the complex, whether it's physical, whether it's psychosocial, whether it's, you know, excessive cognitive demands that fatigue you and you don't have enough rest or recovery. So I I always ask clients to think of this in an integrated approach and not to be so divisive and separating those health hazards, but think about people and performance in an integrated way. Yeah, no, that sounds fair. Do you find do you find that your profession gets called in to deal more with all types of issues and design type issues more than any sort of psychosocial issues? Well, it depends. If you're calling yourself an ergonomist in in Australia and the US, so again, it depends what country, you'll likely have that term associated 
-hmm. with either office-based ergonomics or manual task risks, correct? Because of the people's association, that label, that language. And if you're calling yourself a human factors professional in those countries, you'll likely be asked to be involved in more of the psychology involved in, in work system design. However, like I said, it is interchangeable if you're doing it well. And in other countries, economics may have a different profile completely like, like Brazil. Yeah. All right. Just going to ask a couple of your opinion on a couple of things. Remote work. Some workers have embraced working from home, etc. Some workers don't. Speaking to employers and even recruitment agencies, it's almost seen as if you want to keep and retain quality workers post-COVID, where possible, you've got to at least offer some sort of hybrid arrangement. Is there any dangers of, of people working from home? Oh, absolutely. There's dangers from people working full stop. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and there's, there are dangers of not allowing some, your term agility in the system and flexibility, because there's dangers about recruitment and retention and accessibility and design for diversity, people with different needs, but there's dangers of having people out of sight. There's dangers of, of there's dangers of whether you're in any space of the physical, cognitive and psychosocial exposures, but, but have you got the communication systems in place and the detection systems in place to really understand what's happening when somebody is working remote. Do you understand if they're exposed to family violence? Do you understand mm -hmm. if they're exposed to awkward setups? Do they even have a whole office space to use or are they battling with family members around this? You know, are they working 16 hour days because they're actually really highly motivated and they don't even know how to detect the symptoms of overwork and potential near burnout you know it, it, there are risks of course there are risks on either side i'm sounding like a really good lawyer here <laughs> it depends yeah, yeah. i can argue both sides here <laughs> do, you, do you you're sounding like agonomous human factors maybe should be a, sort of integrated both into health and safety but also human resources if if, if you're to fit within an organization whereabouts in an organization would an ergonomist sit? Oh, gee, okay, watch out. <laughs> Get ready for it. <laughs> I see, I have this vision that human factors and ergonomics professionals should be at an executive C-suite level as work design strategists, that in fact, they are a key centerpiece to curate and cultivate design-led strategies in a business where they help integrate all of the business objectives from safety and as you said workforce strategy or or human resources right and procurement and continuous quality improvement engineering industrial design depending on what type of organization go through all the business units and we can help with design-led approaches to make sure those strategies are integrated among business units and at the same time develop the relationships with conventional designers and be the one to cultivate those relationships and make them accessible and readily as some channels readily available to all these business units who might not even think of different design professionals. So I see that there's a linkage in our role to the conventional design community and to help translate that into, into different business units. Whether you need a graphic designer to help 
you know, your, your page pop and get a communication strategy. You need instructional design, you need industrial design, or whether you need architectural interior design, you know, web design, keep going through the list. That human factors ergonomics professional can be a great linkage if they're allowed to adopt that type of role, work design strategy. And and the example that you said, if you want to go really, really basic in terms of, you know, something in the physical domain, and it's a reducing a risk so that something's less heavy, less repetition in the work, less exposure, more recovery breaks. At the same time, maybe you've designed that task so that women and older workers or somebody with a disability Somebody on an ARC rehab plan can access that work, can do that work, perform it, and it's meaningful to them. Then you've connected, you've designed for diversity to enact an inclusivity policy. So HR is happy. You've reduced risks. So your ARC health and your safety teams are happy. You might have made it more efficient and productive. So your quality control, um, you know, continuous quality improvement units are happy and maybe through that you had some equipment and you streamlined a procurement strategy and put in the procurement strategy an idea that the person supplying that equipment had to demonstrate human factors engineering before they supplied it and before they trained people and you created some streamlined efficiencies and procurement practices so it connects so many different business units if it's done well and helps you all achieve a strategy and you've actually done one thing you've changed one task and yet four or five business units got to tick off, a, yes, a success on their key performance indicator. Yeah, look, that's fantastic. I can say I, it's you're going to have a finger in a lot of pies if, if <laughs> in that situation. I don't think you're ever going to be out of work because there's so many areas that you can help improve. Well, not if you're hiring, Tom. <laughs> as long as you're in the you're in the decision making seat. Thank I, you for your support. <laughs> I, I, I can I can see um, I can see the value in it. All right, I've just I want to ask you a couple of questions because we're we're getting low on yep, time. Yep, yep, yep. All right, one thing that has annoyed me for years, and I've just wondered if it wasn't an ergonomic thing or if it's just in my head open office design mm. i hate it is there is there any reason besides my i'm a grumpy old man that i hate open office design oh there's a lot written about it you're not the only one that has certainly been challenged by this and there's a lot of research that talks about you know you may have more open space and and in some instances people will then create their own barriers and boundaries to to construct a sense of privacy again and, and send more emails rather than the purpose that it was built for was to go talk to people. So you may be subject, depends how it's designed, you may be subject to distractions in the ambient environment, whether that's lighting or noise. I hear a lot of complaints about acoustics in environments like this, and that can be really frustrating. And, and Tom, we've not done your sensory profile to see how <laughs> noise affects you and how light affects you and how movement, the visual distractions of just movement around you might affect you. I, I, I haven't seen research on this and it's just purely anecdotal, but I kind of find that there are trends in the stereotype of people and the jobs that they're attracted to based on their sensory profiles. So, you know, the accountant, the lawyer, the something conservative in engineering, as opposed to the creative, you know, the colors that they like and the stimulation that they might like and, and whatnot. So 
we do that sometimes in industries and have a look at people's sensory profiles and it, it, it always tends to match either the job they've token, taken, adopted, the career they've adopted or the type of space they like to work in. But there, there, it certainly is a challenge and you'll find more that the open plan uh, settings have, have evolved a little bit. You get more activity-based design so that people can gravitate toward the work area or the that suits them personally or suits the task that they need to do. And you'll see that more and more in, in architectural interior design. Excellent. All right. A couple of brief ones. You've co-edited a wonderful book called Ergonomic Insights. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, successes and failures work design. Can you tell people who haven't yet had the opportunity to have a look at this book what it's about? Yeah, promo piece. Thanks. And you've had Nectarios Keranikas on your podcast I understand. And Absolutely. yeah, Nick, Nick was the originator of the Safety Insights book. And I opened my big mouth and went, wow, that's awesome to tell case studies about real world experiences, the practitioner's perspective. Oh my gosh, there's so much more that could be done. And it could be done in ergonomics and arc hygiene and workplace wellness and then and, and go through the list, resilience engineering, et cetera. And he went, cool you're on the next one I went oh <laughs> so it's part of the workplace insight series for Taylor and Francis and this is the second book in that series and now I'm part of the series editor I'm already in the three oh, seven eighths nine tenths the eleventh hour of the third book of healthcare insights so that has a slightly different flavor but essentially we're trying to tell the story in ergonomic insights about the practitioner's story, their successes and the things they've stumbled over so that people who want to advance these practices can learn, learn from the trenches, not so much just esoteric academia, but how are you actually going to make this become realized in organizations where the culture of an organization matters, that tribal culture, the rhythm of work, the, the leadership strategies, the communication strategies, how are you going to help projects land? And when they land, what, what did that success look like? And was it really, you know, celebrated? And did it lead to other great things? Or did you stumble? And if you stumbled, why? Because we can learn from that. You know, it's a way of basically telling stories. And it's the heart of storytelling is at the heart of learning and connecting with others. So our authors have done a, an amazing job. The authors of this book have really contributed. And they're very experienced, some more experienced than others in, in writing skills and some more just about being in the trenches. But we really wanted those stories told. So there's some great case cases in, and it covers l different industries. So you'll likely find something that, that suits the work you've done or that you want to do. And we're finding some universities are now purchasing the book so they can use these cases, exemplify some of the, the academic theoretical underpinnings. Yeah, the reason I like this series is is literally that it 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 not only gives you successes, which no offense, people in the industry love to talk about their successes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's not many people who who are willing to put their hands up and say, "Oh, by the way, yeah, this is this is where it didn't go to plan." Stuffed up here, mate. <laughs> and <laughs> whoops, you're right. the The essence of learning, both in storytelling or otherwise is we learn more from our failures, but we tend to, as I said, keep the failure stories to ourselves for whatever reasons, which means the learning is limited to a few individuals. Whereas if we look at the book, we actually see we can learn from 
mistakes, errors, failures that we actually haven't had to live through ourselves, or we haven't actually had to be involved with. It's like simulation. It's a safe place to learn when you get to hear somebody else's story. And and so the authors did a great job of of conveying their humility in this. And it it might not have been something they did wrong. It could be something in the work system and and learning how to assess the readiness for change, for example, or having change leadership or working with people like you who have got a certain specialty in your safety sciences and your training sciences and managing learning teams or whatever it is. So learning who to partner with, all of this is important. So a lot of humility in the book. Okay. Two more things and then we'll we'll have to call it a day. First of all, you recently launched the Why Work podcast, which I believe has done extraordinarily well in such a short time. Who are you hoping to reach with this excellent podcast? Oh, thanks so much for that. It's it's great to to cross-educate about different different podcasts and they they serve different purposes. This was done with Alan Girl, who's a defense lawyer, and Trace Chepkowski, who was the state prosecutor in Queensland. And I I learned that the two of them would have a case and they'd be on either side of that case, you know, advancing, presenting it or prosecuting or defending. And I thought it was hilarious that, you know, they're they're mates and could go out for a drink and, you know, work is work. And and I knew these guys through separate channels and we all were having coffee and croissants and the table the tables were there and the chairs were going up from the waitresses and and waiters because we were just giggling and laughing and relaying some stories and our unique perspectives and come to find out Trish also had a background in music composition so we just put this as that digital music composition that doof doof that you know, <laughs> so we said right <laughs> let's use that so, you know early career and and Trish said we should record this so it happened sort of on a, a stumbled weekend and and it was just Fun. And the genesis of the idea was basically we, we wanted to just share the realities of work, the humility of work is that term that I used before. And this is a way to do it is to unpack case law and then consider how you could reconstruct and redesign that world of work based on some of these real world experiences. Uh, and so we wanted to have fun and confront that sense of norm because these are some unusual cases sometimes that we we talk about and we wanted to generate some sort of emotional response to the realities of work and then then start to stimulate this thinking about design-led leadership in organizations and how you would again cultivate an, a sense of design and partner with designers to imagine and ideate I call it to imagine a new world of working to innovate a lot of reflections a lot of some personal stories you get to know us and who we are and and we make fun of each other throw shade at things but there's some serious topics too the last episode was was quite serious about vicarious trauma mm-hmm. other times it's about work parties that go awry and almost everybody can roll their eyes and go yeah i i've been there or i i was that person so oh, dear. it's no, fun thank no, you for that that's good all right finally a happy international women's day oh thank you However, <laughs> however, don't however, don't. No, I, you know what? Someone, Clive Lloyd actually said the other day, a really good thing. He said, everything before however does not count. And so I just want to say, I shouldn't okay. have said however. Uh-huh. Look, I was, I was raised after, after my dad died when I was fairly young, I was raised in a household of women. And um, mm-hmm. I, I, I just think that for me, every day is International Women's Day. Oh, uh, brownie points again for Tom. I, I, I. <laughs> I just Kudos, Tom. I I don't know if there, we need a, a Father's Day, a Mother's Day. I don't. I mean, I understand the celebration of it, 
But look, I'm all about treating people respectfully sure. and empathy every day. But I know it's important for some. So that's about all we have time for today, Sarah. Thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. I love what you're doing for the community, you know, and what a good educator you are for the health and safety community. I've been listening to your podcast and, and learning from your guests as well, some great people. So thanks for including me. A pleasure, Sarah. But for now, we might leave it there. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Have a great day. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.